Uh, as you can see from the program that you were given when you came in, as you can see from the bumper video that we looked at just a moment ago, we're, we're starting a new series uh, this morning. I think it's important, just as we're on the verge of moving into our building, I think it's important that we take some time as a church and just talk about what makes a powerful church. What makes a church that can change a city? Uh, No one wants, at least I hope no one here wants, to be part of a wimpy church. No one wants to be part of a wishy-washy church. No one wants to be part of a dead church. No one wants to be part of a sissy boy church that's dominated, that's dominated by a paralyzing fear of making a mistake or trying something and failing or, God forbid, offending someone. No one wants to be part of a sissy boy church. I think all of us, down deep, want to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves, something that's powerful, Uh, a church in which the Spirit of God is drawing people on a regular basis whom you would never expect into a personal relationship with Christ, a kind of church in which the Spirit of God is healing the broken, where where He's freeing those who are enslaved to addictions, where He's healing and restoring broken families. A church in which multiple ethnicities can, and, and generations can exist in a unity deeper than any secular organization or any hashtag could create. And as a result of all of that, a church that is actually changing the culture of the city in which we live. I think that's the kind of church that all of us want to be a part of. But if there's anything that is draining the power out of the local church in America... Anything that is uh, uh, making a mockery of God's idea of the local church, it is this. It is the individualistic, me-centered manner in which many people attend church. In other words, I go to church when it's convenient for me, as long as I don't have anything else going on, and then I go home. I don't serve anyone, I don't really get to know anyone, at least not well enough for them to speak into my life in any particular way, I'm not accountable to anyone, I just do church and then I go home. That was never God's idea of church. A powerful church doesn't consist of a bunch of individual me's, but instead of a unified and collective we. That's where the power of the gospel is really seen, in unity in relationships, in a church of diverse people working together for the same mission, willing to die to their independence, to invite what God wants to do in them and through them into their lives. That's what a powerful church looks like. And this, this, this we mentality is reflected in our vision statement. It's not a me mentality, it's a we mentality. I want us to read it out loud together. And as we do, I want you to listen for the collective we that's in this. Okay? The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? It's the vision of City Church. It's not the vision of me or vision of you. It's the vision of us collectively, a movement of people. You can't be a movement if everybody is individual me's. A movement only happens when people join together in a collective we to accomplish something. That's what makes a powerful church. 
Now, in addition to the collective we that, uh, that we that you can hear in our vision statement, also embedded in that vision statement, either explicitly or implicitly, are five elements of a powerful church, each of which require us as a church to unite as a collective we instead of remain individual me's. And so for the next three weeks in December and then for two weeks in January, I want to I look at each of these elements of a powerful church that are embedded in our vision statement. And I want to help us as a church to see and to understand how much we need you to become a part of the we of City Church rather than remaining in your individualistic, me-centered world, okay? And so we're going to start today with the engine that drives our vision statement, and that's the gospel. People are being transformed, a movement of people being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you three ways that the gospel transforms you so that you can be a part of the collective we that brings spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. Turn with me, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to one of the most controversial passages in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah uh, chapter 53, it's in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet. If you don't know where it is, look it up in the table of content. Isaiah chapter 53. I want to show you three ways the gospel transforms you so that you can be a part of the collective we that brings spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. Let's start with this. Here's the first way that the gospel transforms you so that you can be part of the collective we here. Here it is. The gospel removes your sin. The gospel removes your sin. You can write that down somewhere. The gospel removes your sin. Let's start reading at verse 4 of, of Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he took up our infinities, uh, or excuse me, our infirmities, and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Skip down now to to verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now, as I said just a moment ago, this passage, the whole of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, it's very famous, but it is also probably the most shocking and the most controversial in all of the Old Testament. For many people, the idea that this could possibly refer to Israel's Messiah is preposterous because of the violence of the language, okay? Pierced, did you hear it? Pierced, crushed, cut off, stricken. It's unthinkable to many people that God would do this, these things, to Israel's Messiah. But fortunately, there's a passage in the New Testament that resolves the, con- uh, the controversy. You don't have to turn there. It's in Acts chapter 8. You can read it later if you want. I'll tell you about it here. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, there is this official. He's, uh, he travels all the way from Ethiopia. He's an Ethiopian official. Travels to Jerusalem to worship uh, the God of Israel. And on his way home, after worshiping the God of Israel, he is sitting in his chariot. He has a copy of uh, part of the Old Testament. And he's reading a portion of it. 
Guess what he's reading? Isaiah chapter 53. He's reading this very passage that we just looked at. And suddenly, as he's reading this, a leader of Jesus' revolution by the name of Philip, he comes upon this Ethiopian official and he asks him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian official says to him, he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And then Philip, Acts 8 tells us, began with Isaiah 53 and told him the good news about Jesus. You see, the New Testament says that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus Christ. And that's hard for people to understand because of the violence of the passage. How could God possibly uh, do this to his Messiah? It's not what people were expecting. It's not what the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a king who would liberate them, uh, who would make them free uh, from slavery. But instead, God allows the Messiah to die for the sins of the Jewish people and the sins of all of the nations of the world. Now, I think, though, that there's another reason, beyond just the violence of this passage, that it makes, uh, it makes this passage so uh, controversial. And here, here's what it is. I think it's, the, I think it's the costliness of human sin that this passage describes. Okay? So, so, you know, the text says, for instance, for the transgression of my people, he, the Messiah, New, the New Testament tells us we know that, is Jesus. For the transgression of my people, Jesus was stricken. See, I think it's hard uh, for many people, well, I think it's hard for all of us to accept that my sin required the death of God the Son, the Messiah, to forgive me. I think that's hard to accept. A woman I knew back in, in Dallas uh, once said to me, actually she's pretty angry when she said it, she said, you mean to tell me that God couldn't have found another way to deal with human sin than by killing his own son? Maybe you've heard that before. And I made the point to her, I said, you know, uh, frankly, or I said, actually, the Bible says that God didn't kill his son, that his son willingly gave up his life. So I want to make sure you understand that, I told her. But then I said, I said this to her, I said, I want you to imagine for a moment that a, co- that a co-worker tells a lie about you to your boss that allows her, your co-worker, uh, to get a promotion instead of you. I want you to just imagine that scenario. And I said to her, I said, if you choose to forgive her for what she did, who's going to pay the cost? You will. You're going to pay the cost. Instead of making her suffer, you end up suffering the consequences of her sin against you. And I said, I said to her, I said, that's, that's just how forgiveness always works. You suffer. You pay the consequences of someone else's sin against you. And then I said to her, I said, look, and so, and so when God chose to forgive our sins, your sins, my sins, that's exactly what he did. He suffered the consequences of our sin against him in the death of God the Son. The Bible says that the wages of sin, the cost of sin, is death. Someone had to die, either you or the Son. And God chose to allow God the Son to die on the cross for your sins. That's how forgiveness works. And you know, when, 
when the Ethiopian official in Acts chapter 8, when he reads this, when he understands this, when Philip explains it to him, what Jesus did for his sake, the Ethiopian official was so moved, he was so blown away, you know what he did? The text says that he wanted to go get baptized immediately. He was like, I want to I be baptized. I want to uh, show everyone that I'm a follower of Christ. I want to be baptized into this movement. I want to be part of this. That's how much it moved uh, the Ethiopian official. It changed his life when he understood what Jesus had done so that his sins could be removed. See, I, 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 think, I think because of pride, I think many of us, uh, just like the, the young woman that I was speaking to, uh, that I was telling you about a moment ago, I think many of us will do anything to get out from under this idea that Jesus had to die uh, for our sins to be forgiven, for our sins to be removed. For instance, uh, there are some people, probably some people in this room, who adopt uh, the idea that, well, look, you know, God, uh, God loves everyone. He's inclusive. He doesn't exclude anybody. He accepts everyone uh, for who they are. And so, yeah, you know, I have a relationship with God because he loves everyone. No big deal. But I'd like to suggest to you that if that is what you believe, if that's what you believe in, a God who just accepts everyone no matter what, when you think of your relationship with God, I'm going to challenge you that that won't move you like it moved the Ethiopian official. Like it doesn't change your life. It doesn't move you to want to be part of a collective movement that brings the gospel to your city. Because, well, of course, I mean, he just accepts everybody just as they are. No big deal. No big deal. It's not like he did anything. It's not like he sacrificed anything for me. He just accepts everybody, so no big deal. It's not going to move you. That kind of God isn't going to move you. On the other hand, there are some of you kind of approach this from the exact opposite perspective. Some of you have a God that you worship that is like he's holy and he's demanding. And the way that you have a relationship with this God is by trying very, very hard. You just, you just like, you give it all the work you can get it, give it to please Him. But when you have a God, uh, when you have a God who's, who's only holy and demanding, and when you think you're pleasing Him with your moral behavior, when you think of your relationship with God, I'm going to challenge you that that doesn't move you to action either. It doesn't bring you to tears. It doesn't, it doesn't electrify you. It doesn't galvanize you. You know what it does? When you have a God like that that you worship, you think you're pleasing him with your, uh, with your good deeds and things, it makes you proud. It makes you proud. Look at me. And then you look down your nose at other people. Look at me. Or... If you're going through a period of time where you think that you're not pleasing him, when you think of your relationship with him, it makes you hate yourself. It, it brings a lot of shame. That kind of God brings a lot of shame. And see, again, I'm, I'm going to say that neither pride nor shame makes you want to jump for joy and say, I want to get baptized and, and I, I want to I become a part of this movement to bring the news of Jesus uh, to a city. What does make a person uh, that excited, 
make a person say, yeah, I want to be part of this movement, is a God who is both infinitely holy and infinitely loving at the same time. And I'm going to challenge you that it's not until you're humbled down into the dust by the holiness of God and the costliness of your sin, and it's not until you're affirmed and valued into the sky because He loves you so much that He would willingly die for your sins. It's not until you have that happen that you will be humbled out of the pride that makes you look down on other people and affirmed out of the self-hatred that makes you look down on yourself at the same time. Only then with a God who is both infinitely holy and infinitely, infinitely loving, only then will you be brought to tears, so moved by the sacrifice of Jesus that you would say, I want to get baptized into the collective movement of people who've been forgiven and are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are bringing that news to the city that you're living in. That's the only way that you're going to experience real uh, transformation Uh, real excitement about what God has done for you, real passion to become part of a collective movement of people who are bringing the gospel to your city. If you have an infinitely holy God and an infinitely loving God who died on the cross to forgive your sins. This is the first thing that the gospel does. It's, It's one of the first results of the gospel that can make you part of the collective we is that God paid the price for your sins. Your sins are removed because of what God did in His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, here's the second one. Second way that the gospel transforms you, uh, besides the removal of sin, so that you can be part of the collective we that's changing the city of Evansville. Here's the second thing. The gospel, write this down somewhere, the gospel restructures your heart. The gospel restructures your heart. Now, I want you to skip over in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. This is really interesting because right after the teaching of uh, Isaiah 53, right after talking about Jesus and the sacrifice that he will make for the sins of humanity, Isaiah goes into this, and and I think this is very shocking. He says in verse 1, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, don't hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Don't be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Don't fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called God of all the earth. Now, just wait a minute. I want you to think about something. Right after teaching about the Messiah suffering for our sins, Isaiah writes this, and he tells barren women to sing for joy. Now, does that make any sense to you? Does that seem odd to you? Why in the world is he telling barren women 
to sing for joy. Remember, God gave him this prophecy, so Isaiah is writing what God has told him to say. Why would God tell him, tell the barren women to sing for joy? Okay, here's, here's why. And you have to understand what, uh, what having children meant in ancient cultures. In ancient cultures, there was no more despised and worthless person than a barren woman. Now, why was that? Well, because having children in ancient cultures meant uh, three things. One, the more children that you had, the more, uh, the more your land produced, because you had more people to, to do the labor, and therefore the more income you had, right? So it kind of gave you status and, and wealth, right? Second, if you got old and you didn't have adult children to live with, you literally starved to death. Because your children were your retirement plan. They were your 401k. They were your social security. And by the way, if you wanted to have a couple of children who could uh, man the, uh, who could do the labor of your land for you, you needed to have about 10 kids because only about two or three were going to survive. Okay? And then third, if your whole tribe, like all of your relatives, you know, the whole tribe that you lived in, if they were ha- weren't having lots of children, the tribe next door would grow in population uh, larger than yours, and therefore they would have a larger army than yours, and they would come and conquer you. Okay? That's what it meant to have children in that day and age. So you can, you can see that like, if a bunch of women were down at the river washing clothes, and, and one of them said, you know, uh, I, I really think I'd just like to have two or three children, she would barely get the words out of her mouth before the rest of them would jump in and say, Do you have a death wish or something? And not only that, they they would also probably start pointing their fingers at her and and say, this isn't just about you. It's It's about all of us. Unless you have as many children as you possibly can, you're dooming us. Like you're dooming us economically, militarily, politically. You're dooming us. It's not just about you. And therefore, a, a woman who bore children in those ancient cultures, she was a national hero. But women who either didn't have children or couldn't have children, uh, they were despised. They were made to feel worthless about themselves by the standards of ancient culture. So the reason that uh, God says for Isaiah to, to say, you know, barren women... A shout for joy. The reason is that barren women uh, symbolized the most despised, worthless people in that culture. Okay? These were people, barren women, who by the standards in which women were measured in that day were failures. They were nobodies. They were unworthy of attention. Now, I realize that there are likely women uh, today who are here, maybe, maybe they're listening to this sermon by our podcast or our app, that haven't been able to have children. Maybe you weren't able to have children. And look, I, I, I know that that is terribly, terribly painful. I, I get that. And I don't, I don't want to diminish that in any way. And in fact, maybe the only consolation that I can give you is that our culture today is not a culture in which women have to gain their identity from the number of children they have. But 
That's not to say that our culture doesn't have things that determine a woman's value because every culture has things that they tell women and men, by the way, to look to in order to measure their worth. In our culture, it's not for women, it's not the number of children you have, but there are things in our culture that women are supposed to measure their value by, and not just women, men as well. And, and, and look, these, those cultural measures of value become crushing for everyone who has to live up to them, male or female. Amy and I, uh, a few years ago, were eating in a, a very expensive restaurant in Dallas. Um, it actually, it was a number of years ago. I'll say less than 10, more than 5, I don't know, some, somewhere between 5 and 10 years ago. And an old friend of mine that I had not seen in at least two decades came up to me in this restaurant to say hello. And we, you know, we kind of did just normal kind of chatting, you know, how are you, that kind of thing, a little bit. And then he starts telling me about his accomplishments. I think I made the mistake somewhere in the conversation about, of saying, well, tell me what you've been up to. Well, this began a long list of his accomplishments. And I want you to listen to this, okay? This guy is Troy Aikman's financial advisor, okay? In fact, when Aikman retired, I remember listening to his speech, and he thanked my friend by name for his work, for his honesty, for his character. This guy, in these two decades, had become one of the most sought-after financial advisors in Dallas and of professional athletes throughout the country. Now, Amy and I were dining at this place because someone gave us a gift certificate to dine there. This guy was dining there because it was Tuesday. He could dine there anytime he wanted. I went home, and I'm telling you, I felt horrible. Like, I felt, I just felt horrible all the way home. I, I what have I done? I thought to myself, you know? Look at all this guy has accomplished. Look at how much money this guy have, has. What have, what have I done? And all I could say to my wife was, I'm really sorry that you got me. <laughs> now, now, she didn't feel that way. At least she didn't say that she felt that way. <laughs> but I, I just felt this horrible crushing Shame, because I didn't measure up to our culture's standards for men of success. Wealth, power, money, all of that, you know. And I, you know, I can imagine that other men in the room who, me- who you know, ever measure themselves by the culture standards, I imagine that there are other guys that have felt the same thing. And, it's, and, and for women... For women, our culture has standards for you guys too, right? Uh, like, here's one. God forbid that you aren't beautiful. Or God forbid, if you are uh, beautiful, that you should age. Because in this culture, ladies, and don't, don't listen, don't shoot me. I'm just, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot me. This isn't my thing. It's the culture's thing. In this culture, ladies, you are only valuable if you're beautiful, if you're successful, if you're worth a lot of money or married to a man who is. And it's almost impossible, isn't it, for men, for women, it's almost impossible for us all to not go after 
all of the things that our culture tells us to measure our worth by. Whether you're in an ancient culture that says measure your worth by the number of children you have, or whether you're in a modern culture that says, look, measure your worth by your beauty or your success or your wealth or your power. It's almost impossible to not go after that when everybody else does. And when all the messages of our culture say, do that and you'll be valuable. It's almost impossible, isn't it? But it's not impossible. It's almost impossible. Because when God says to the barren women in this passage, when he says, shout for joy. And then in verse 4, he says, don't be afraid. You will not be put to shame. He is offering to everyone, men and women, the opportunity to find emotional freedom and psychological freedom from the idols of our culture. He's saying, sing, O barren woman, shout for joy. That's so countercultural. God is saying to the women in, in our culture, he's saying, ladies, I can give you freedom from men. I can give you freedom from a sense of worthlessness, freedom from shame, for not measuring up to the culture standards. He's saying to men, I can give you freedom from having to measure up, from having to place your identity in things so fragile and so petty as wealth and possessions and earthly power. He's saying, I sent my son to free you from the oppressive structures of your culture. How? Look at verse 5 again. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. In other words, because of Christ's death on the cross prophesied in Isaiah 53, when you believe in him, the verdict on your life and value and worth is in. It's in. Because the God of the universe allowed his son to die on a cross for you. The verdict is in. Whether you ever have a child, whether you're beautiful, whether you're successful, whether you're wealthy, whatever, you have the praise, the applause, the delight of God. And so you don't have to look at anything else. He's saying, I, the Lord, can be your value. And what greater value could you possibly have than to be delighted in and sacrificed for by the maker of the universe? What greater value could anyone have than that? See, the separation, he's saying, that once existed between us and God that caused us to begin, you know, we were designed to find our meaning and our value and our identity in Him. The separation that caused us to look for meaning and value in all of these other things, that separation has been bridged by the cross of Christ. Do you know what I needed to do? I didn't do it. You know what I needed to do in that moment that I felt, frankly, so ashamed of my lack of Uh, worldly success by uh, our cultured standards. You know what I needed to do in that moment? I needed to preach the gospel to myself. I needed to say, you, Jeff, are worth the price of the Messiah. The only one who can measure value has said, you are priceless, Jeff, by the cost and the suffering of my son on the cross for your sins. He took them all onto himself because that's how valuable You are. So get out of the puddle of shame that you're sitting in and go mow the yard because it needs it. That's what I should have said to myself. Should have preached the gospel to myself. I didn't do it. See, if you you place your your identity and your value in what your culture says is important, you will be in emotional and psychological bondage 
uh, to those things for the rest of your life. Your culture will crush you. But if your identity and your value are drawn from the love of your creator through your belief in Christ, you will have cultural and emotional and psychological freedom. The culture won't crush you then. In short, what it does is it restructures your heart so that you find your value, your identity in Christ, not in the idols of your culture. And I want you to just imagine, if if that were to happen in your life, just imagine how much time, how much emotional energy, how much psychological energy would be freed up for you to invest in a collective we a collective movement of people who are being transformed in this way, whose hearts are being restructured, and who want to bring this same freedom to your whole city. Imagine how much time would be freed up if you began to experience this restructuring of your own heart. You just imagine. So the gospel removes It removes your sins, and it also restructures your heart so that it doesn't find value in all of these other things, okay? And then finally, and we'll wrap up with this one. Besides the removal of your sin and besides the restructuring of your heart, here's what the gospel does so that you can be part of the collective we that's bringing transformation to this city. The gospel reverses your values. This is it. Just read from verse 11 of chapter 54. You'll notice here that the metaphor now changes from barren women. Oh, afflicted city. Maybe you could think about Evansville there. Oh, afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. I will build you with stones of turquoise. Your foundations with sapphires, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. Boy, any of that sound relevant today? The imagery changes from a barren woman to a deserted, afflicted city, a poor city, a devastated city. And God says that as a result of what Christ did, the the Messiah in Isaiah 53, as a result of that, God says that he will rebuild uh, this city that he's talking about in such a way that it will be powerful and secure and aesthetically beautiful and economically prosperous. Now, what city is he foreseeing? What's he foreseeing? Well, You have to go to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, where it depicts the end of time, and you see this city that's coming out of heaven, and it's coming down to the earth, and Revelation says it comes with sapphires and rubies and diamonds at its base. And what Isaiah is seeing is that at the end of time, God's heavenly power will come down to renew and create the world the way that he always intended the world to be at the end of time. God didn't want disease. God didn't, he didn't create this world for suffering. He didn't create it to have terrorism in it, death, poverty, racism, injustice. He didn't want any of that. And in the end, he's going to make the world renewed the way that he intended it to be. And the question is, how can we, 
How can we participate in that rebuilding of the world? Until the end of time comes, how can we today participate in what he wants to do? The answer is through the gospel. Through the gospel. Now let, me, let me ask you something. You know, we're talking about the gospel reverses your values. Why do you think that throughout the Bible, God always seems to be working with people like barren women and last-born sons in a culture that valued first-born sons. And like little David over his bigger brothers. Why does God do that? Here's how one writer put it. I'll put it up here on the screen. He says, we meet the Son of God not in the corridors of power and wealth, but in the byways of human suffering and need. Christ chose to identify most intimately with those who were useless in the world's eyes. And that's how Christ achieved our salvation too. He became despised. He became weak. Through his weakness, not through his power, our sins were forgiven. Rome, powerful Rome, crucified the Messiah. Guess who's still around and guess who's not, though? You see, the gospel, when you, when you understand the gospel, a com- there, there comes into your life a complete reversal of the values of this world. Like it turns your values upside down when you understand that Christ became weak, that Christ identified with the lowly, that it took the costliness of his death to rescue you. And when you get that, your values change. Racial and class superiority, you got no use for that. Accrual of money and power at the expense of others, you don't have any use for that. Yearning for popularity, beauty, recognition, you got no use for any of that. All of those things are marks of living in the world and, and are the exact opposite of the mindset of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. When you understand, when you've been affected by the gospel, you'll look, you look at your own money differently than you did before. You don't need to have a lot of it anymore because that's not how you get your security and your significance. You start to pour yourself out to other people to bring about bit by bit by bit the city that God wants to build and eventually will bring to completion at the end of the time. You start to look at yourself differently, not just as an individual, but part of a collective movement, a collective we that is seeking to transform a city. And I'm just going to, as we close, I just want to ask you this, and, and some of you that are in uh, city life groups, you'll be able to talk about this more in your group. But here's my question to you. What if we, what if, what if we, not a bunch of individual me's, but what if we as a church collectively really were filled with people who have all three of these results of the gospel, uh, the reversal of values, the removal of sin, uh, the renovation, uh, the restructuring of your heart. What if, what if we were a church that had those uh, results of the gospel in our lives? What, what, what could we do? Well, I'm going to just suggest to you this, that we would be a powerful church that could change a city. 
I believe that. Over the weeks of this series, you're going to notice when you walk in and when you leave that there are a bunch of tables in the hallway. There the tables represent ministries in our church uh, that you could be a part of. And I want to challenge you to be part of the collective we of this church, to invest in this church. As when we, when we move, when we hold our first service over there on the 24th of January, we're going to need some of you individuals to become part of the collective we to serve in this place. And I, I just want to say this. I promise this is the last thing. We need the generation of people 40 and under to stand up and to be a part of the collective we. Look, I'm going to tell you something. The people who have made this church happen to this point have been people probably 50 and over in this church. And they've, they've done a tremendous job and they'll continue to do that because that's the kind of people they are. But I'm going to tell you, those of you who are 40 and under, um, we need you to become part of the collective we. And that's going to mean that you're going to have to be countercultural and stop doing the individual me thing as you attend this church and become part of the collective we. We need some of you to be in our first impressions ministry. We need some of you to work with our children. We need some of you to work with our, our students. We need some of you to serve on our tech team back there. Man, they don't get much appreciation. Would you give them a round of applause back there, the tech team people? We're going to need some of you to work in our parking team. We're going to need you to work in various places in this ministry. And I'm just going to challenge those of you who are under 40, I'm going to challenge you today, and I'm going to challenge you for the next five weeks to become part of the collective we of this church. Because I think if you do, and I think if the people over 50 continue to do that, those of you 40 to 50, you can just continue to be part of the individual me if you want. No, I'm kidding. We need all of you. We need everybody. But if everybody jumps in and becomes part of this thing, I believe that we can be a powerful church that can change the city of Evansville. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, when we come across a passage like Isaiah 53, we are both humbled into the dust by the holiness of God that would require such a sacrifice for our sins. But we are, both, but we are also uh, like just moved into the sky by what you would do for us. Lord, let us be a church that is galvanized by that. Let us be a people who are radically changed by that, who are excited about it, who carry a passion about that, and who want to be a part of bringing that passion to this city. Lord, please, let us be that kind of a church. And as we become that kind of a church, Lord, use us to change this city to bring into this city the things that you would want to bring into this city. Our Lord Jesus Christ, use us. Do in us what you would do in us. Let us open our lives to that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.